Welcome to the Universal Dancer Podcast with your host, Leslie Zare, author of The Alchemy of Dance and The Alchemia Remedies, coming to you live from Cairo, Egypt, the ancient land of Chem. Journey with us to explore sacred dance, the sacred arts, the mystical and the magical. Join a community of like-minded souls seeking to understand the cosmic dance of co-creation through the sacred arts. Come along and expand your mind, ignite your creativity, and explore something new and something old. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. For those of you who are joining live, please let us know where you're joining from. And we have a very special guest for you today. I'm excited to have this conversation. I think Jackie and I have a lot in common, so we'll have a lot to talk about. Maybe we're going to need more than an hour, but we'll, we'll keep it to an hour. <laughs> She'll have to come back if we have more to say. I want to also remind you that there are other episodes. This, I believe, is the seventh episode. So you can see the replays on YouTube. There's a playlist. And also the podcasts are available on all streaming platforms, iTunes, Spotify. So if you missed some of the past episodes, you can catch them there. Okay, I want to get into our conversation. So let me introduce you to my guest for today. My guest on this episode is Jacqueline Driesens. Jacqueline is an ethno-choreologist, multidisciplinary artist, and community arts practitioner in choreography and percussion. Her inspiration draws from nature and the environment, exploring the ecology of place and embodied experience. Jacqueline's creative dance practice wields at the intersection of sound, movement, poetry, and film. Her teaching in choreography also draws upon her formal training in contemporary methods of dance making, together with Western classical ballet and traditional dances of the African, Celtic, and Indian diaspora. Her physical technical skills are further supported with Tai Chi, Yoga, Feldenkrais, Skinner release technique, and Laban movement analysis. Jacqueline's research interest is in performance ritual, sensoriality, and creating sacred space through the nexus of dance. In 1994, Jacqueline co-founded and is director of Wild Moves International, which continues to nurture the contemporary dreaming for the annual return of the sacred Kingfisher Festival at Ceres Community Environmental Arts Park in Brunswick, Melbourne. She is inspired by indigenous world dance cultures and their expression of connection to ancestral spirit and the land and how this connection fosters identity in the youth generation. She has extensively studied dance styles and drumming techniques of the African diaspora, which has led to many exciting artists in residency programs in schools, festivals, and communities across Australia, Ghana, Ethiopia, Senegal, India, Brazil, Nepal, and the Netherlands, such as Where Journeys Meet for Gasworks Community Arts Park, the opening ceremony for the Deaf Olympic Games in Melbourne, the Seven Sisters Festival in Mount Martha, the Mountain to Mouth Extreme Arts Walk Gathering of Elders, 
Yu Yang's Gathering of the City, Gathering of the Elements, Barwonhead's Rivermouth, and Mirabilis to celebrate Hildegard von Bingham for the Wildfire Festival at St. Mary's Basilica. Children of the Blue Light, bringing healing through music and dance, was her first major ethnographic film documentary in performance ritual at the Cape Coast Slave Dungeons, Ghana, West Africa, with Asante Dance Theater and Wild Moves International. Jacqueline integrated this fieldwork experience as lecturer in dance education at Deakin University, Melbourne, Australia, from 1989 to 2016. During this time, she taught, researched, developed, implemented, and delivered courses in early childhood, primary and secondary dance education, and performing arts, as well as physical education. In 2016, Jacqueline was the recipient of a Stepping Stone Scholarship for the Master of Arts in Ethno-Choreology, First Class Honors, at the Irish World Academy of Music and Dance, University of Limerick. She also then went on to study with the Irish School of Shamanic Studies in Castlebar, County Mayo, Ireland. Let's welcome Jacqueline to the show. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad you could join us. You've done a lot of things, <laughs> and we have a lot to talk about today. So, so let's that's one good jump. thing. Yeah, I was going to say that's one good thing about getting older is that you end up having done a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of wisdom to share with everyone. I think so. Okay, so let's begin at the beginning, and maybe you can just sort of tell us a bit about where your dance journey began. How did, how did you start dance, how or where did you start dancing? Well, you know, I think all young children and toddlers love dancing in some shape, way or form. But I remember consciously being aware of it when um, my mum and dad took me out into the bush and as you do as a child, you explore everywhere. And I do remember being on this very spongy moss on the rock. And as I was stamping on this rock with my feet and feeling just the beautiful sort of sponginess of, of the moss, my mum called out, Jackie, be very, very careful. And I stopped and listened to her. And I looked at my feet and she said, that is where the fairies live. And I was so amazed to think, oh, my goodness, I'm dancing on top of their house. And at that moment, that was when I realised, okay, there are other creatures and other beings that live in the same area as me. And the next thing that she said to me was, see if you can just step lightly. And so instantly I started to do that and I realised that I had gone from stamping and pushing my feet into the spongy moss to just suddenly stepping lightly and the, that triggered sort of the idea of I can make choices in the way that I can move and this is where the dance started to take form for me, yeah. That's my earliest, you know, memory of of really tuning into my natural environment and um, connection to the earth, yeah. 
That explains a lot because all of, of what you've written, not maybe not all of it, a lot of what you've written and these projects is so much about the connection to the earth and good for your mother. I'm I'm impressed. <laughs> Go mom. <laughs> she set you she set you on the right path. <laughs> Yeah, but, and yeah. so instead of instead of saying, "Look, stop that, get off that," and you know, reprimanding me, she actually uh, gave me a choice to move in a different way. And I think, yeah, that was a real pivotal moment, very significant. And to feel your feet, and to feel your environment, and and I think that is one of the things that dance really brings us is is that that connection. Maybe before we go any further, you could explain what the, what an ethnochoreologist is, because I'm sure okay. that's a term that people are probably not <laughs> familiar with. So, so let's begin yeah. with some definitions. Okay. Well, I think most people are familiar with ethnomusicology, um, but ethnochoreology is really looking at culture, looking at humanity through the lens of dance. So, for example, um, if I think of the return of the sacred kingfisher, you know, that happens annually in Victoria in on uh, Wadawurrung, oh, sorry, no, Wurundjeri land. And what happens is that um, it the kingfisher bird comes back every single year. So it's not that it's about us dancing on the land. It's about understanding why do we dance on this land? You know, why do we come together and meet at this time, at this place, at this moment? And then what do we create together that's meaningful? And how do we put that together as a choreography, as a dance? So it's looking at the culture but coming from the dance perspective. It, all, it also has music, it also has visual arts, it has, you know, the, all the arts and um, writing and poetry, song, songwriting, et cetera. But the ethnochoreology actually focuses in from the dance. So when I made the Kingfisher Boogie up, it's like, okay, I wrote the words, I, I would recite the words, I'd, I'd wrap them, but one year we might have it in a very sort of gypsy flavour, another year it will be just with beautiful clapsticks, another year it's going to be African drums, depending on what musicians are available at that moment in time during that year, and then it depends on funding. So all of that is ethnochoreology because that has a big impact on what you choreograph, but it's about the meaning. How do we express ourselves as human beings but from a dance perspective? Mm. That's so interesting. We have kingfishers in Egypt on oh, the wonderful. Nile. The, the farm oh, that's so that I used beautiful. to live on in the summer. Yeah, there was this bird that I kept seeing and I didn't know what it was. I And then I went and I looked it up and it was the kingfisher. So when when you wrote about that and, and I saw the video that you did about that, I thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, amazing. Yeah, I know the kingfisher. Yeah. Well, the kingfishers are all around the world. They're all around the world. But the sacred kingfisher, um, 
is very significant to the eastern border of Australia and it migrates down from, you know, Western Samoa, Papua New Guinea and down the east coast of Australia from North Queensland right down to the woodlands in Victoria. So it's a pretty extraordinary bird. That's the sacred kingfisher being blue and white. There's lots of kingfishers all around the world with different colours. Yeah, mm. I'll have to look, see what it is. So this this kingfisher, this the sacred kingfisher and this festival that goes with it, is this originally an Aboriginal festival or um, is that where the importance comes from? Is it is it a more ancient celebration or is this something rather modern? Well, it's contemporary and um, there's a beautiful story behind it. Um, at some stage around 1993-94, a sacred kingfisher actually knocked itself out on the window of a classroom that was at Ceres Environmental Park in Brunswick. Um, and it, it's still in our CBD, which is the central business district of Melbourne. And so that's pretty extraordinary to think that a, a sacred kingfisher is actually there because they had they'd left that area once there was all this urbanisation and um, there was a whole big migrant um, population explosion in the Brunswick area, a lot more building going on in industry. and. Um, and so, you know, of course, the waterways were became quite polluted. It wasn't until the parks and waterways were cleaned up, um, indigenous plants replanted again, and then the ecology f was started to fix itself up. And when that happens, that's when the sacred kingfishers started to return. So when Eric Bottomley, who was a um, the education officer there at Ceres, when they heard this thud, you know, everyone jumps up and all the kids are going, oh, what was that? What was that? And so he went outside and they saw this little sacred kingfisher and he said, wow, we haven't had kingfishers here for decades. This is extraordinary that they actually come back. So he's holding this kingfisher in his hand and and the children could see that it was still alive. So, you know, all these children are staring at this sacred kingfisher, in, including Eric, and then suddenly it it was no longer stunned. It just poof, flew away, and that was extraordinary. So Eric immediately um, went to tell Tai Sansom, who was another um, environmental educator at the park, and um, and Ian Warrambudge Hunter, who is the indigenous elder of the Kulin Nation here, and of the Wurundjeri, and he was another teacher at um, Ceres Environmental Park. So the word got around, and Ian said, "Oh yeah, 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 kingfishers are back. Yeah, why not?" And so Thais got on the phone to me and said, "Jackie." We need to make a festival up, you know, come on, let's get going with Ian and we've got to get this a celebration through the arts to just share with the rest of the world, if not Melbourne, that if we clean up the environment, 
the environment takes care of itself and kingfishers have returned. So Ian then began to share his beautiful story that had been passed on to him from his mum and um, of the dreaming of the kingfisher. And it was really through Ian Hunter who he was just so generous in the way that he was able to share that story with us. And so from that, we started to develop a contemporary dreaming about the Kingfisher, about how this beautiful land in Brunswick was the Kingfisher's stamping ground where it was always there living in, in balance and harmony with the ecology. And then some destructive force came in and that was urbanisation. Um, and then people wake up after this destruction, there's an awakening and it's like a realisation of if we don't look at what we're doing in our lives in connection to the, where we're living, it's going to die. It's all going to go away. So out of that realisation um, comes a regeneration and that's where the plants and trees were, you know, became... Uh, the growth started to really grow again and the ecology came back to its nearly to its beautiful state and people are walking along the creek now instead of, you know, not going down there because that's where all the car bodies are and washing machines were thrown and the tip was, etc. So that was all cleaned up. So we go through these stages of creation, destruction, realisation, regeneration and then celebration. So we might have a different theme every year, but essentially there are five, um, you know, that's the creative format that we follow and then we weave whatever the theme might be each year. So, yeah, my area really is the celebration where we're looking at the Kingfisher Boogie and we're taking on the embodiment of this beautiful little bird and how, do, how does it eat? How does it feed? How does it look after its young? Um, how does it call out to its partner? Where does it fly in its territory? What does its tail look like? How does it move? You know, how does it fly? So I took all those sorts of ideas of, you know, how does this bird actually function and live in its environment? Because if we understand the sacred kingfisher and the way the the sacred kingfisher is connected to its sense of place and territory, well, maybe we can learn something from that. You know, how do we look after our environment so that Mother Nature can in return look after us and support us? Yeah. So the kingfisher boogie is that celebration of hope that if we look after the land, the land will look after us. And so this is what Ian Hunter tells us you know it's a very indigenous concept you take care of the land the land will take care of you yes so it's not a traditional aboriginal festival no but uh we do have a lot of indigenous input and uh, i say that it's not a traditional aboriginal festival because um it's something that was created in a contemporary context back in 1994 so a little, um, a little bit about Australian history, you know, Indigenous people have been here for over 60,000 years. Um, and, of course, when white settlement came, that was totally disrupted. So 
you know, the return of the Sacred Kingfisher Festival has many layers and another layer is, you know, how can we as uh, white Australians learn from Indigenous people on the importance of land because Indigenous people have that inextricable link to the land. And so we've got something that we can really learn here and in the actual festival and the format of creation, destruction, realisation, regeneration, celebration, we've got something that we can really celebrate and that is that is as long as the bird can come back to the stamping ground every year in the woodlands of Victoria, that means that we are looking after the environment. Yeah, so essentially, you know, it's a dance about grief how we really upset that connection. But there is a celebration and there is hope that if we do look after the land, the kingfishers will return. So I think it's an important story for our culture, particularly in Melbourne. And uh, one thing that we've been always trying to do is, you know, expand the festival on the kingfishers' migration path. So you never know, we might have one on Samoa, um, North Queensland, everywhere where the kingfishers are. Hmm. Well, it sounds like it wanted to be heard. It came, it came back and and made a big splash. And and uh, I think that nature will do that. We we talk about how we've abused nature, but I think in the end, when it wants to be heard, it will be. <laughs> Whether we like no it or not. No matter what we do. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Mother Nature will take over and, and we'll be we'll be left on the sidelines. So yeah. 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 Good. She's unstoppable. She is. And I think we yes, we haven't been been doing well, but um, I think we need to also remember that that we can become extinct as well for, for other reasons. So we need to be more careful about what we're doing. Yes. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of dance ritual and ritual performance, because I think this is something, again, indigenous cultures, the ancients, this was a part of their life, but it's really something that, that we lost somewhere along the line. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. So, so let's talk about that a little bit. Hmm. What, well, what do you, I mean, you're obviously, you're obviously doing this, you're creating these festivals, but what in the bigger picture, I think it is important for humanity, but maybe how, how do the cultures that you've worked with, how do they integrate dance and performance just as an expression? of celebration or or whatever um what do you think the importance of that is because i think it is very important so what how do you see that yeah it's extremely important uh one thing that we do at the return of the sacred kingfisher festival is that it's a community performance ritual so it means that people who come to the festival actually participate by being there by interacting and doing the Kingfisher Boogie or interacting and doing the regeneration dance. Um, so it's in the act of doing 
where you start to embody the whole connection that you have to a sense of place. So I find with, um, you know, particularly with Indigenous people here in Australia, their beautiful connection to a sense of place for me starts with, as a white person um, looking at their dancing, it's their feet and how their feet connect to the earth and the way that they stamp. So every single um, clan in Australia has a different way of stamping and they can be identified by the way that they're stamping. And uh, I know that even also from being in Africa and learning a lot of African dance as well, where um, the importance of stamping is about connection to the earth as mother. So I also have participated in a lot of um, healing ceremonies, particularly um, in Ghana and Senegal. And one thing that I was really so mesmerised about was the use of the feet again, about every time the feet are on the earth, it's a step, it's a connection to Mother Earth it's a celebration of your foot as a human being dancing on her earth. And that connection makes us realise we are part of the one. So it's not about us necessarily dancing in one spot at one moment in time. It's about the connection of our feet to the earth. How do we feed our bodies? How, how can we dance on the earth with good energy by the way that we feed our bodies, by the way that we, we rest, by the way that we engage with each other um, and celebrate that moment in time? So it's not just about that moment in time, it's how you've come to that time as well. And so performance ritual I, I find is extraordinary with Indigenous people because it's so ancient. They've been doing it. And and same with Europeans, you know. Uh, essentially my heritage is uh, Dutch heritage but also Celtic, Flemish, Viking, you know, we're all, that. my ancestors would have all been island hopping around Western Europe. But what's interesting is that, of course, they had their dances as well and they had their ceremonies and connection to earth and a sense of place. Um, and performance ritual, what it does, I find, is that it makes you zone right in to be totally 100% present at that moment in time with the people that you're with, with the earth that you're stamping and celebrating and dancing on. At that moment in time, it helps you to be completely as one so that you know that you're not the only being in existence that you work completely as one, not just separate, but as one. And dance was so much a part of our lives. In ancient times, I think dance was the religion, that, that it was important to celebrate and have joy and, and to move and to move together. And it, it created skills of community and how to do other things perhaps uh you know hunting or whatever and it's something that that we have lost and and over time i think that that just that 
celebrate that given that we are just going to celebrate what's happening. You know, when the kingfisher comes back, when it's the solstice, when it's whatever, that we're just going to celebrate what this is and probably mm. with dance. But that mm. just seems to have been lost. So I, I think it somewhere along the line, yes, the Europeans had their, their dances. I think the indigenous cultures have retained that. But somewhere along the line through Western cultures, I think we, we lost that. And perhaps that was through religion when that became a sin in some religions to dance. So um, for whatever reason, we lost it, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it's important to bring it back. And, and it doesn't, I, I like the concept of ritual dance rather than performance, because to me, performance in our Western culture seems like something that I'm going to be watching. And I like what you're saying about those people who come to the festival are doing the dances, because I do think dance is participatory. It's not it can be a performance that someone's watching, but I think the real beauty in it is it, the way that it connects people. So, um, mm. yeah, to bring that back. Yes, just embodiment. into our culture. Mm. As soon as and I somebody. I love what you in... said about the, the stamping, because that's exactly what your mother was saying to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's be right. mindful. Be mindful yeah. of the way you're stamping. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And you know, indigenous cultures haven't lost it at all. You go to Africa, and oh my goodness, you know, you see dancing dancers that have been there for just centuries and centuries and centuries. You know, dancing about water, the life cycle of the human life cycle, rites of passage. You know, you celebrate, um, you know, children going from being a child's body to a, you know, to a beautiful adolescent body and, and the celebration of that and the responsibility that goes with that as well. You know, celebration dances about the importance of um, the rain, the sun, you know, the earth growing, spring, nature coming out again. So, you know, Australian Aboriginal people have never, never lost that. African people have not lost that. They continue this to the to this very day. Um, in Senegal, I was um, I was so lucky to be a part of a healing ceremony. But healing ceremonies go on every week, or you know, every day, depending on when the healing needs to be done uh, for people and the ritual involved in that involves everybody, everybody in the community. You know, everyone is there sitting down or standing up or anybody who needs healing of some sort, they come out and they dance with so much vigour and vibrancy and the drummers are completely supporting, you know, the dance to keep it going, keep it going, keep it going because if the dancer can keep going with that connection of their feet stamping the earth, you know, the energy changes in their body and that's when healing can come in and release can happen. So to be a witness to that was extraordinary in Yoff and with the Mbai family, you know, it was incredible. It was really incredible. So healing, you know, through dance is, uh, is, um, is very important, I think. 
it, it's been transformative for me as well, you know, even just in my own personal journey through life, dance has been just transformative actually, mm, part of my whole personal development. But imagine if we had that collectively, like once a week there was just a, a dance celebration where you would go and, and stamp it out. I think we would we would have a more of a sense of community and there there would be a lot of healing and just in something that simple, but mm. um, maybe, maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, well, see, this is the importance of community festivals and community arts is you see, when you get all the artists together around a particular theme that's very significant about where the place is that you live, well, then you come up with so many ideas for healing that place. For example, the other project that I'm currently involved in is called um, Mangroves from the Water. And, you know, I'm from Janjuk. I live in Janjuk. Uh, Janjuk is uh, Wadawurrung for Ironbark tree. So I live in the region of Ironbark trees. But just down the road in Barwon Heads, which is still Wadawurrung land, um, there's all these mangroves. And these mangroves, you know, I've never been in that mangrove forest because I've never gotten on a kayak and gone all through the mangrove forest there. But as a result of this beautiful project, Mangroves from the Water, 12 of us artists, uh, from visual artists to videographers to choreographers, musicians, etc., you know, we've gone out on a kayak and we've gone out into these mangroves and I've just seen a whole new area of the place where I live and I, I knew it existed but I never experienced it. So to be able to go out into the mangroves as a choreographer and dance and create a film about what is it like to have mangroves live right next to us and to actually bring them into our lives, like it's quite extraordinary. They live in this incredible balance between the, the tide coming in and out. And if that soil, if that waterway is not clear and clean, you know, they die. That's how precarious that whole area is. So our mangroves from the forest project between the 12 of us artists, we're going to be having an exhibition at uh, the Gordon Gallery in Geelong and that's on World uh, Mangrove Day, which is on the 26th of July. And that's where everybody will be able to see how do different artists approach this project called Mangroves from the Water. So my project is all about exploring the spaces between spaces in the mangrove forest. And this is what can happen at a community level if you allow artists to come in and give expression to a particular idea that needs to be shared with the rest of the community. Because I know in my community so many people have never experienced the mangrove forest before. It's like people in Brunswick at Ceres Environmental Park they didn't even know that sacred kingfishers were there and to, and they've been living there for 15 years and then suddenly they turn up to a festival and, and they'd be overwhelmed with, I didn't even know this went on. I didn't even know we had kingfishers. It's like down here in on the surf coast in Janjuk. 
I didn't know there were mangroves out there. I mean, I sort of saw them over the Barwon Heads River when you go over the bridge, but I've never been there. So this is what happens if you allow artists to go out into the community and make a statement about how important the place is where they're living. It helps people to have meaning and connection to where they live who want to start to think, okay, I've really got to look after the area where I live. So you get rid of the rubbish, you don't drop rubbish, no vandalism, don't chop these trees down all the time. People start to realise that they don't live just on their own, they live together as one. That's how we have to start thinking. We live together as one, including Mother Earth. She's our mother. But art is a way to communicate. And I think it's a very feminine way to communicate. We're so used to the written word or the spoken word, and it, which is very kind of direct and, and possibly, um, you know, could, could feel like you're being told or you're being lectured to. But I think with the arts, you have this way to communicate something perhaps more through experience or, or more experiential that I think you can talk to people on a different level if you can communicate in that way. Mm. And perhaps well, you can touch them with an experience maybe if, if you're an artist and, and, and open something up to them like the mangroves or the kingfisher. Mm. Mm. Yeah, embodied experience is what I really love doing because I can, because I've embodied the experience of being in the mangrove forest, I then can find a way as a choreographer to share that experience with my community so that they can start to see, wow, I can start to really have more of a connection to where I live. So the way I started to look at embodied experience with um, the mangroves was that um, I would, it's been two years in the making because we've had COVID, of course. So this is this is the process that I, I did. I would go out in a kayak with other artists. You know, we'd go out onto the Barwon River. We'd go out to the mangrove forest. That in itself is, is a big thing because, you know, I don't travel on kayaks every day. So that's a physical, another physical experience. So um, we'd go out with Zaida, she's from Syria and she's done a lot of painting in the UAE, United uh, Emirates, and there's a lot of mangroves there and she has this exhibition that goes around the world looking at mangroves. So here in Geelong, we would go out with her initially into a certain area of the mangroves and then from that experience we would talk with each other about what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're sensing and feeling, and then talk about, well, how could we approach it from our own arts perspective? So then I would go out, you know, on my own or with my filmmaker. His name is Enrico Santucci. He's from uh, Italy and he lives here in um, Geelong. And so we would go out together and he would film me improvising in the mangrove environment. So I would be exploring how is this mangrove growing? Where, where is the space in which it's growing? How and 
why does it grow in that way? And how does the light filter through the mangrove forest and get to where the beautiful muddy waters are down below? And what is the connection of the space from the roots in the mangroves through that mud? And then how does it search for the light? Where, what spaces does it go into to reach to the light? And so that became my project, um, looking at the spaces between the spaces and that that is a sacred space because that is where the mangrove grows. So I wanted to honour that space between the spaces because to me that was my personal deepest connection to Mother Nature because it's like, well, she must be just, you know, in and around those branches and down in the water and, and uh, you know, down in the murky mud and then meeting the light and that interaction. So it becomes quite a scientific thing as well, you know. But what I wanted to, to do as an artist was celebrate that branch connected to that branch, connected to that branch and roots that go down into the mud but also roots that come up out of the mud that look, you know, that reach to the sun this way. So we all think roots go down, but mangrove roots go up so that they can really get the oxygen. I just found that fascinating. And so that became my movement study. So uh, we, Enrico and I made a film about um, the mangrove forest. I called it Echelons because I was interested in that emplacement, that arrangement of the roots to the branches. And so that spatial arrangement of those branches and the shapes in the space, I called that echelons because echelon is like an arrangement of space, but you can't see space, it's so abstract. So that's why I ended up calling it echelons. But I think that's a good a good part of an artist too is to be able to express those things that other people might not see. I think we've been so formatted or programmed the way that we are um, indoctrinated or, or taught that everything becomes about what's useful. Whereas an artist, I think, can, as you're going in there, you're seeing what things are doing you're seeing the space and i bet those are things that most people never even looked at or never realized existed but if you can bring that to someone's attention maybe other people are just not as creative or or using their creativity i think they are just as creative but they're probably not using their creativity where artists do Artists mm. are used to tapping into that part of themselves. So to be able to show people things from new eyes, whether, um, whether you're you know, a dancer or you're creating music or you're painting something, I think that's what the artist can do is, is show us a new perspective of nature. And I think that's really important because people are too, um, formatted for lack of a better word just in their thinking and they don't realize all these other dimensions that could be experienced through something like 
the mangroves or mm. these dimensions of the kingfisher that they just mm. never realized and how how connected in the kingfisher is to their environment and and what it's telling them about their environment so to me that's kind of the role of the artist is to bring out these other perspectives that perhaps other people can't see or mm. they will see once once it's brought to their attention but if they if that's not i i mean i think the art, artistic mind is very different than the normal if we want to call it that but um, whatever normal that is to me is the, yeah whatever that is <laughs> the formatted one is, is what i is what i'm talking about normality the way we've been taught to think so i think that's the beauty of any creative person or any artist is to show us these levels of existence and to bring that out so um yes to work on environmental issues or uh social issues or whatever it is when you use an artistic format i think you can bring out those those deeper or different levels of things different perspectives and let people experience so. that mm, i think so and also working with different artists and uh, I find that um, so inspirational too because, you know, I think in space, so, you know, shapes moving in space. Space is the medium that I work with, with the body. So um, if I work with a musician, you know, it's extraordinary because, for example, um, Emmanuel Driesen's Awusu, he's doing the balafon music for the echelons uh, film and live performance and you know for me I'm using my hands like this for example and that's because I'm thinking of a high a big rainfall that's come down and then with that big rainfall I'm kayaking along the river and I come across a channel and these roots of the mangroves all of a sudden a dancing in front of me because the water's trickling through these roots and the whole all the roots that are going to the sky are suddenly just alive and vibrating because the water level's so high now for me i can use my dynamic quality of vibrating etc but a musician will create sound a soundscape in a such a different way so what i've found emmanuel doing is that on a balafon which is a traditional um ghanaian instrument a little bit like a xylophone where it's got um notes or different sounds that come from slats of beautiful wood and so when he plays that, it has this extraordinary sound and suddenly it's sounding like the mangrove. But it's not um, a direct interpretation of the mangrove itself. It's, it's Emmanuel's artistic interpretation of that, which in, then inspires me. And it's the same with Enrico, who's um, doing the editing of my film. You know, the way he has shot me in the tree from a particular angle even though i could say look i want you to really follow the movement of my hand or my foot or my shoulder or whatever but still it's him and his camera where he chooses to look here or there 
or down there because I'm in the moment of authentic movement. I've got to really be focused in on what I'm doing. So what's great about Enrico is that he's able to make choices about where he wants to focus in on the camera, on my body in relationship to the mangrove tree or the water. And what I love about that is that when I see what he's filmed, it's like, oh, wow, so that's that's how I am in the mangrove tree. And that's what he's chosen to look at, whereas I can't see myself kinesthetically. I can sense and feel where I am in the space, in the tree or in the water or in the mud or in the boat. Kinesthetically, I understand where I am, but I can't see myself whereas the camera allows you to actually see yourself moving and then from that that can be edited in the way that Enrico and I decide upon and that collaboration between the soundscape live music live dancing um, and then the film at the same time being shown in a space, in a gallery like Gordon Gallery, where people are gathering to watch this and they're all watching this all at the same time, then that's where the sharing takes place in culture and, and that's a shared experience that's meaningful because we all live in this Geelong region where I'm from in the surf coast in Geelong and if we... We all love the area where we live. So, again, it's another way of helping us to connect to a sense of place. And, of course, the, the Wadawurrung people have been doing that for over 60,000 years here. So they always had that celebration. They always had their, their dances and their storytelling and passing on to the next generation. So, you know, this is the importance of artists. You know, this is why we need to have these projects. And it's those different levels of experience, I think, which it, like speaking different languages where one person can bring in the, the movement and someone else can bring in the visual and create this more than three-dimensional, multi-dimensional experience of something that, that can speak to us on on all these different levels absolutely yeah, and you know this is where dance educators or arts educators in schools um where schools it's just wonderful if you've got a art specialist but even if you know you've got a, a primary arts education group of teachers who love the arts and of course love working with children and so if you give, bring the concept of the kingfisher to a school who lives close by to the Mary Creek in uh, Brunswick and the children are often down the creek all the time coming down for a walk after school or whatever but and they have seen the kingfisher bird so the art teacher will create beautiful um, artworks with the children, whether it be puppets or whatever their medium's going to be, watercolours or it might be clay or whatever the medium for the visual arts, then the media teacher is, got, you know, making a film about that relationship. Dancers, you know, they're going to be learning the Kingfisher Boogie or they create their own regeneration dance or they might create their own dance about 
recycling and the importance of that so or keeping the creek clean and they're going to do a dance about collecting rubbish so all the arts are used and you know the english teacher is going to get them to write things about it journal it everything like that so all the arts of you are used in this integrated way um you know and if every school could have that experience that would be wonderful wouldn't it it would but i think we can do that in our homes too you know as a For family sure. or or as as the mother you can you can get your children to engage in certain things i think it doesn't always have to be some institution that's bringing this together but or to have community centers as you were saying where people yes. could gather and do these creative things together mm, yeah that's right let's talk about ghana a little bit what how did you get did you go there did you live there what what is your connection or experience of ghana from the beginning i i know mm. where you went in the end but yeah yeah well um back in 88 uh 1988 oh my goodness me back in 1988 um you know i really wanted to uh, well actually i was a secondary school teacher in that lifetime and i had created the dance curriculum at a secondary girls school called our lady of mercy college in heidelberg in melbourne and um it was actually the students you know who encouraged me indirectly to find out more about different types of dances from around the world because the school uh, was quite multicultural and a lot of the children would come to school or the girls young women would come to school and um, share their dances that they knew from their own family background um, Europe or Africa you know uh, Asia etc so there was a time where uh, those young women would be sharing their different types of folkloric dance styles and I could see how powerful that was and uh, during that time you know Michael Jackson was really big everyone wanted to do you know Michael Jackson movements and Madonna and so you know I found myself and you know funk music hip-hop was coming out and about and was starting to become mainstream then so i really found myself finding ways to try to explain to the young women that i was teaching that you know it's not just about thrusting your pelvis you know all of that sort of thing and um i started to really look at well, why do we like moving our pelvis? And why do, you know, young women like moving their pelvis? Just young people love that rock music and, and, and what is that all about? So I really got into how did funk music start? You know, why did hip-hop just come into existence? But it didn't, you know, it really came out of, the 60s and James Brown and before that, you know, there's swing and, you know, what, does, what is the swing dance? And then I found myself really starting to look at, oh, my goodness, it all comes back to Africa. And then it just clicked. 
oh, right, okay, I'm not just going to the Netherlands to find out my own roots from my own parents, but on the way to Europe, I can go via Africa. That, that would be fantastic. And so that began my, my journey to Africa. I, I found that um, I really wanted to understand where, what would it be like if I went to a country where I didn't have to explain why I danced or why I loved singing or playing music. I don't have to justify that because I found that, you know, particularly working in education, you always have to be very clear on what are you teaching, why, how, pedagogy, all of that. It's institution, as you say and it has to have an outcome, et cetera. And I thought, no, I want to go somewhere where I don't have to explain why I dance and why I love dancing. And I found myself in Africa. So I ended up in uh, Harare in Zimbabwe, and I basically went down south, came up the east coast, um, Zanzibar, Kenya, went across to the Congo, went right across the Congo, saw amazing music and dance in the Congo and then went across to um, Nigeria, um, parts of West Africa, but mostly then into the Sahara, North Africa, and then into Europe. And even when I was in Europe, <laughs> I ended up gravitating to a lot of African dance because so many fantastic African musicians and dancers were actually performing in Europe and were teaching in Europe, and I had access to that all of a sudden. So that um, when I came back to Australia, it was like, wow, there's actually African music here in Australia. And I, I, it, was, it was like all of a sudden the African music scene had started to explode here in Australia. And, um, you know, we had Randy and the Jar Roots, for example. You know, Bubaka had come in from... Um, Senegal as part of Wom Adelaide, which is a big world music and dance uh, festival that travels globally. So all of a sudden I found myself in the African music and dance scene and that's where I um, ended up doing some really lovely, you know, work with uh, Joe Malachi, Tulisana, group from South Africa. Um, Chris Lesser had travelled to West Africa and um, had started up his own group called uh, Adzuhu and I was a dancer with Adzuhu and he was very instrumental in helping um, Ghanaians particularly come out to Australia. And, um, and then there was another band, Moses Ojar, and they had come out to Australia and were doing festivals all around, but I actually saw them at... Um, Woodford Folk Festival. And so, you know, I'm out in that network of the arts and the music. So there's an African scene that's happening um, in Melbourne big time and still to this very day. So then um, what happened was that uh, one of the drummers from Moses Ojar, Isaac Parr-Brown, he, um, uh, well, yes, we met and had a family. And what was great was that, you know, he was very interested in um, running a drumming and dance tour to Ghana, West Africa, and that is how it all began. So he was my connection to Ghana. And um, then I met Selete Nyomi, who was from Agro Theatre Company, 
and I met all these wonderful Ghanaian artists who some of them are still my dear friends here and now living in Melbourne and have got children themselves. And what's wonderful about that is that um, having that strong connection to Ghana over the years since 2001, um, I started taking study tours to Ghana every year, teaching in the schools and also working with the Santi Dance Theatre. And um, then over the years, which was about seven years in, I started to realise, wow, you know, there's this ominous Cape Coast fortress. You know, there's slave forts all along the west coast of Africa. But because I'd been in Ghana so many times, you know, I always did a trip to the Cape Coast or castle or fortress. It's quite a contentious issue, what you call it. Um, there's also the uh, Elmina Castle as well. But, you know, these are all... Um, they're slave dungeons, you know. It's pretty hideous as a human being to go there and it's like, my God, did we did we do this to each other, you know? What is this in our humanity? So it had a profound effect on me. And also, you know, my son Emmanuel, he, um, he did not travel to me, with me to Ghana that year, but um, a very big, significant, incident happened in the Cape Coast castle where a lot of um, African Americans were in the little tour guide that I was doing. And, um, you know, I really sensed and felt their anguish and their sense of, um, yeah, just their anger. And it was, it was something where I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I, I really want to do something. I felt a very big compulsion to share with my culture here in Australia and the rest of the world because I have shown my film Children of the Blue Light all around, you know, different parts of the world. But basically this film that I made was a um, performance ritual where I had a Santi dance theatre drummers and dancers, and then I had Wild Moves International drummers and dancers, and I painted everybody blue so that you, you couldn't really tell who was black, who was white, but the blue is very significant also of healing. So I felt a very big um, push and, and compulsion to go into every space that I possibly could, and with the music and dance that we choreographed and composed together with Wild Moves and with the Santi Dance Theatre and Agro Theatre Company was, they were doing the production and the filming. And we were actually in a slave dungeon. So whether it's the male slave dungeon or the female slave dungeon, but through our bodies, through the music and through the dance and the choreography, um, we could give a different perspective to the tourists who were coming into the Cape Coast Castle so that as the tour guide, the Ghanaian tour guide, was telling the story of the transatlantic slave trade and what happened in this slave dungeon, we weren't so much reenacting his narrative. We were 
just being present and showing how what it must have been like to be viewed as a commodity, to be chosen, to be looked at and how abusive that was. But also I showed with the blue light as a way uh, with our blue bodies inviting, you know, this way of looking at our bodies as beautiful, as amazing beings that can bring about healing through music and dance. Doesn't matter if that's in the past, in the present, but we did this to um, bring the past to the present so that in hope of a future that we never ever have this in our culture ever again. And this is what I loved about um, Ghanaian people, particularly in the way that the Cape Coast Castle is curated. You know, it's a real celebration of um, resistance, you know, like this will not happen again and let's just celebrate um, this grief. Let's celebrate our, our capacity for resistance. And it's the same with the kingfisher, you know. This is a dance of grief, but let's celebrate the fact that we have this capacity to live in hope and do something about it. So that, that's why I felt so compelled to do Children of the Blue Light is to um, use music and dance in a contemporary way but with honouring the tradition of um, the dance, the Ghanaian traditional dances, and also the celebration of the rock because the rock and the land where the fortress is built on, you know, is, is this incredible rock. So it's about honouring and connecting ourselves to that rock, to that natural monument that's there. And... Um, creating a sacred space so that the audience could go on a journey and see the importance of how important it is for us as individuals to ensure that our next generation dispels racism, that there's actually no need for it, that we can all operate as one, we're all human beings. We all have a human body, you know, where our body is capable of healing itself, you know, and if we use the arts in a way where we can share this in a very non-threatening way, you know, you can, um, I found that the tourists in the end, what they did was they were invited to join in the celebration dance at the end. And so in the film, that's what you see. <laughs> You know, the, the the banker comes down in his lunch break and joins in. There's a mother with a baby on her back. She joins in. You know, there's a guy from Barbados, a, a ruster man with the long dreadlocks. He just jumps in. Uh, there's a German tourist who he said, oh, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. She jumps in and people are feeling elated that we're all dancing together as one. And so... When we have this shared experience, uh, you know, you can you can move mountains. When we have this shared experience of sacred space and honouring traditional culture and the land, you can put a stop to 
not a stop, but you can at least alert people to the importance of reconciliation and celebrating life. And what was the response from the dancers? Did they feel healing? Did they feel that the energy of the place had shifted or any? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Um, this film was edited into 60, you know, 60 minutes. But as you can see, they're dancing on the forecourt there. So this whole performance ritual actually went for three hours. So when you wow. ask, you know, did the how did the dancers go, they didn't have a drink at all the whole time. And that's how how strong they are mentally, you know, just their sheer tenacity and their belief in, in wanting to share this with everybody who was at the Cape Coast Castle at that moment in time. And this film is, you know, it was made in 2007 and we're already in 2021. So did it change their thinking? Yes. Yes, they started to realise, wow, we're really proud of our culture and you know this is um something that they can uh see as powerful within their own bodies that they can share this message again of hope and yeah yeah it did change their thinking on lots of different levels they started to realize that oh we don't have to do traditional dance we can do traditional dances but we can actually make up our own dances and so they started to have a an interest in contemporary dance making methods and started to create their own dances about who they are as a Ghanaian living in their place of course with respect to their own traditional culture but they started to realize they can make up their own dances about themselves and you know they have their own beautiful dancers like a zonto and hip life you know music and dance which is like their hip-hop in ghana and that's great because that's a dance genre but by learning contemporary dance making methods they could actually create their own dances with their own movement vocabulary not belonging to a particular specific genre so it was it was new for them on so many levels and also, you know, um, for them to realise that uh, as a Westerner, I was very interested in their capacity for uh, their ancestors. So the mask to me represents their ancestor, but I also wore the mask, so my ancestor, and that our ancestors are always with us, always. They're in the next world, but they're always with us and always guiding us, always protecting us. And Indigenous people know that. But for Westerners, we've had that cut from us, of course, um, unless you have a, a deep spiritual belief and understanding of the importance of ancestors and that hasn't been cut. So, you know, because to me it's like, wow, how can you go through that incredible torture and cruelty as a human? How can you survive that? You know, it's beyond belief, really. And yet in that survival, um, you know, we all know the Olympic Games would never be as fantastic as what the Olympic Games are unless, you know, um, the African-American participates or the African participates. 
the whole world participates because we all have this capacity to share our gifts with the rest of the world. And so I, I just love the fact that music and dance crosses all those borders. That's why I called it the blue light because the blue light is like a bit of the darkness, a bit of the light, but it's the dark, it's the shadow. And so the moment the shadow starts coming into one's consciousness, the light, you know, can get in. And so you had this beautiful new ideas exploding, you know, even from that hideous time in the history of the transatlantic slave trade, you know, America wouldn't be as amazing as what it would be if it wasn't for African people there, you know. So it's quite extraordinary how dance and music can can really help with the healing of the planet, not just dance and, that, and music, the arts. And I think that's what transformation is all about, is to take that darkness or those difficult things that happened and find the power in them or find the power from them. People did yes. survive. So that That's shows the, the power of, of these people who have been through these tragedies and mm. have survived them. It does That's bring, it. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make it okay, but it, there's definitely a power in that. And to learn something from it, all of us, whether whether it's the victim or the abuser, I think we all have a lot mm. to learn from these situations. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I just recall the female slave dungeon in the Cape Coast castle and the way that um, in that female slave dungeon, you know, there's 350 women all in this one area and they've only got one bucket you know, and women are menstruating, of course. So how do you share that bucket? You know, how do you survive as a woman in that space at that time with that humidity? Um, and so the improvisations of what I got my dance, female dancers to do was, you know, where does the pain sit in your own body? We've all experienced pain. We've all experienced trauma on some level. You know, let's find a way how we can release that pain, that trauma, and release it into the bucket. And, you know, for, for women, they understand that pain every month because you really have to tune into your body and you really have to release when you menstruate. So it's quite a sacred moment. So what we were able to do in the female slave dungeon is be able to release all that pain and sorrow, trauma that we may have had in our lives into that communal bucket. And what we also loved as the female dancers that all the men were on the outside but on the inside of the slave female slave dungeon so the men are on the inside of the female slave dungeon and the audience are looking at the female dancers who are releasing their grief and pain and suffering in their own authentic dance movement vocabulary into this bucket and the men are on the outside with their masks over their face representing their ancestors and what they do is that they as their ancestors and as men the women are encouraged to release their pain and suffering and trauma and the men take it away 
and they give it to the blue light. And that was very powerful for the dancers as well because as a woman to be able to give that to a man and then that man releases it to the blue light was quite liberating for a lot of the women. And likewise, when we were in the male slave dungeon, it was the women who were on the inside of the male slave dungeon and the men uh, actually reenacting and dancing. And we are coming in and moving in and around their bodies as if to say, you know, stay centred, stay grounded, you know, be in your body and we are here to help to protect you. So, you know, we wore our masks over our face because, you know, we're not being human at that stage. We're being an abstraction of our ancestors in the spirit world. And so for the women that was quite, and the men, they were, it was quite a profound moment where the men could then release their pain and suffering and trauma that they personally had there was no verbal exchange here. It was all through dance that they then would be able to release it to the women who released it to the blue light. And then what was beautiful was that we all came out of though that slave male slave dungeon or the female slave dungeon, wherever we were coming out of, and we came into the forecourt of the Cape Coast Castle. And this is the forecourt here, you know, so... These, these stones, these cobblestones are so hot on your feet because of the hot African sun. But what was beautiful is that when we came out there, we honoured the ancestors. So all the people who had gone through that Cape Coast slave dungeon, um, you know, to pay our respects, but also for the people who had left the motherland of Africa, you know, to pay our respects to them, but also pay respects to our own ancestors as well for giving us our bodies that we are now in in this present day moment and, um, and honouring our, our lineage. So, you know, for me to do this was quite extraordinary simply because I'm there as the director, you know, directing all the movements, so I actually have to perform in it. Um, but also I have Dutch heritage and, of course, you know, the Dutch like the French and the British and the Danes and the Spanish, you know, they all fought over that land um, to have ownership over that. So, you know, I've got ancestry that's probably linked to that. I don't know. That's lost to history. But the fact that I am Dutch and the fact that my child is or my son is also in my in my Children of the Blue Light film and performing in the ritual as well. And, you know, he's got um, beautiful Ghanaian culture as well as uh, Dutch heritage, but he's an Aussie boy. He's an Australian boy. Well, he's a man now. But, you know, to actually have him there with both cultures in his blood was quite extraordinary too. So he, again, played the balafon in the female slave dungeon so that when he played the, uh, the balafon in the female slave dungeon as a child back then, I think he was 10 or something, and what was wonderful is that the moment he started playing and having a child play the balafon just lifted everybody's spirit. And so the dancers all became one 
And the audience was also invited to be part of that sacred moment as well. So they're all behind us. So what you have is this child playing improvised music with professional dancers and musicians and then the audience behind them, well, they were the tourists who were part of the whole performance ritual as well. And so you can't help but get healing. You can feel it. You can actually feel it. And, you know, it's just one small little step to trying to, you know, just reconciliation, you know, connection with each other to move on. And I think Ghanaians are very good at doing that because, um, you know, they, they love their land. They consider the land to be mother, of course, and, um, and they're very welcoming to everybody particularly to African-Americans, you know, who, who perhaps have had their roots severed and um, to actually have them come into the Cape Coast castle and participate in this tour is, um, is very healing for them and painful at the same time. But, you know, that's the human condition, isn't it? We really have to feel our grief and then move through it because once you move through it, you transform. You just keep on transforming, transforming during your whole life life cycle. Yes, and I say that because, you know, my father just recently passed away on Easter Sunday. So, you know, I, I really feel him present as well. That's beautiful. And I think it's a very profound experience. You know, we need we need to do this. This is I think why we're here as humans is to transform and to use our energy in ways to heal things, to to change things, to just by doing it, just do the dances, just That's it, just by doing it the healing. Yeah, and I think mm. you shift a lot. I'm sure that you shifted back through the generations, not just the people that were present, but mm. the people yeah. you were honoring from the past. So there's a lot mm. of healing that goes on in those situations. And I think we just need to do it. We just need to do the work, whether it's through dance or prayer mm. or whatever it is, but to, to use our mm. physical energy to, um, to create those situations. Yeah. Well, and, thank you. you know, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Absolutely welcome. Uh, I was going to quickly say that, um, you know, the film that I made in the mangroves, Echelons, um, you know, my father was dying during that time and it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm in these mangroves and my father's dying and at the same time I'm in these mangroves and they could be dying or they did die, but they're coming back and it's so precarious. But what's beautiful about being in a state of grief and working with other artists is that in, in my grief I could relate to the mangroves in a way where, well, you know, this branch is growing here and maybe that branch snapped off, but then there's another branch growing here. So, again, it's about growth, transformation. So during that time of grief, doing the mangroves project, uh, it was so, so grounding for me because I'm in nature and at the same time I'm expressing my grief 
And I'm seeing the grief in the environment, the urbanisation that's all around the mangroves as well. And so I could see the grief in the environment, feel the grief within myself. And the fact that I'm feeling it helps me shift through it. So not once did I feel depressed or extremely distraught that my father's gone. I mean, he's not gone. He's just in the next world for me. But to be able to shift through that grief was was a wonderful opportunity to be in the mangroves with other artists that are they would have wouldn't even know that my father was dying but the fact that i'm there experiencing it all embodying it all really helps you to shift through the grief and this is another reason why dance and music and the arts is very powerful you know our children need to have access to the arts so that they they can feel on so many different levels you know on so many different move, emotions move their emotions rather than yes. getting stuck as you said yeah and there's a celebration of life i mean i think yes the mangroves are a celebration of life even if parts of them die then there's that regeneration as well so mm. yeah Regeneration, yep, that's the word. Well, thank you. I think we could go on for hours and hours. There's so many things I, I didn't get to talk to you about, but <laughs> I think we should, we should wrap it up for now. Maybe we'll have another sure. conversation at some other time. So let us, uh, tell us if there's any events you have that are coming up. Is there anything on the horizon? Sure, there's always things that are coming up. Um, well, every Friday morning I have Wild Moves Dance on Zoom. So, you know, you can certainly come and be part of um, that Afro-styling jazz fusion that I have on Zoom every Friday morning. So you could contact me on Wild Moves International on Facebook and... Um, you could also contact me on Wild Moves International on Instagram. And then the other uh, class that I have is Gelba Dance, which is womb dance. It's all celebrating all those beautiful um, mother creatrix goddesses uh, in India and how they created our world and also Mother Earth. So Gerba Dance is a celebration of life again, and we do that once a month on a Wednesday night. Um, and then, of course, I've got the mangroves from the Water Project at the Gordon Gallery in Geelong. That's on the 26th of July, and um, I'll be showing my film that I did with Enrico, and Emmanuel will also be playing live music soundscape of the balafon and i'll be performing my dance live as well and our performance will be called echelons then there's the kingfisher return of the sacred kingfisher festival that will be on sunday the 21st of november and um they're the main ones at the moment excellent so again, if you want to contact Jackie, she's on Facebook as Wild Moves International, one word. You can find her 
on Instagram at Wild Moves International. That's again one word. And you also have a YouTube channel that's under your name, Jackie Dreesens. So yes, you have many, and I will put links to all of this in the show notes. So um, you'll be able to contact Jackie. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for being here and sharing all your your wisdom and your beautiful experiences and, and healing and everything. <laughs> As I said, there's so many more things we could talk about, but we'll we'll leave uh, we'll leave the audience with this for now. So thank you. Thank you for being here, Jackie. Thank you so much, Leslie. It's been really delightful to talk with you and you do so much work to organize this. So Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. So that was that was a wonderful experience. That was a wonderful experience for me. I hope <laughs> I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And I just want to tell you a little bit about next month. Uh, I'm going to be speaking with Melissa Michaels. She's the founder of Golden Bridge and Golden Girls International, and that will be on the 18th of July. So I hope you will join us for that. And also, if uh, you're here on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. That helps other people find it as well. And if you subscribe, then you'll be notified when new videos come up. And if you are um, listening to this as a podcast, please like and share. Again, more people will hear it if you follow the podcast. So I think that's all for now. And I hope that you will join next month for the next podcast. All right. Bye-bye for now.